History, Lecture 32, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Today we are nearing, sadly, the, uh, the end, the last few kings of the uh, first temple period, which means effectively we're really rounding out the list of kings. Because after Bais Rishon, after the first temple period, there'll be no, no more certifiable, legitimate kings. They, are, they may use the term king, and in one case queen, but that's just a figure of speech. It's not actual, it's not uh, legitimate. Not the only legitimate kings are from the house of David. Is that calling someone prime minister? Yeah, correct. Yeah, well done, exactly. In other words, they, they'll, they'll later on use the term king loosely, but it's not precise. It's not precise and you'll, if you want prime minister, if you want president, whatever term you want to use, but don't use king. Anyway, one of the last kings and arguably one of the last great kings um, is Yoshiao HaMelech. We met very, very briefly at the end of last time. Yoshiao was but a mere lad. Am I saying using the term correctly? He was but a lad at eight, year, at eight years old um, when he begins. Very Yorkshire. Very Yorkshire, not, not Manchester. Manchester, yeah, you'd yeah. say... Okay, you wouldn't. Okay, and, 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 and in uh, Cape Town or Johannesburg... You would say you wouldn't say, but a mere lad. No, that wouldn't be right. Okay, not that that's critical for our purposes right now. I must say, it, he he takes over from his despicable, wicked father, who ain That would be Menashe. Excuse me, his grandfather's Menashe. He takes over from his similarly despicable father, Amon, who had just ruled for two years, and now Yoshiao, as a as a uh, young young child, he begins his reign. He'll rule for a total of thirty-one years in Yerushalayim. And uh, he is, well, the m arguably most significant kinah, the 11th kinah that we read in the day, that we say on the day of Tisha B'Av, tells his story, uh, beginning with the words, Vaikonen Yirmiyahu al Yoshiahu. And Jeremiah, who's just now, uh, we haven't really met Yirmiyahu yet, but Yirmiyahu, who's just now, um, beginning his tenure as uh, the great prophet of the um, near the end of the period of prophecy, um, Yirmiyahu bemoaned. He said a kinah. He said a, he said a, um, a, he wrote this poem, moaning bemoaning Yoshiao's fate. Yoshiao himself had ordained this kinah for all time. It's called the most important of all the kinos. Um, if somebody were to be at a convention saying lots of them and they led with this, you might even refer to them as the keynote speaker. Um, thank you. The uh, Chazal say, never in history, Daniel, you can't go to sleep yet, you just got here. Uh, never in history, I know, my dulcet tones have a natural tendency to just put people out. I recognize that. It's also part of the hour of the day. Yeah, you, so right now we're focused on Yoshiahu. If anybody still has their list of kings, Yoshiahu, uh, Josiah, I guess you would, you would translate or you would, you would anglicize the name. Yermiao, you're asking? Yoshiahu is, is one of the later kings. If you, ah, do you have it? You have it, Brock? You have another sheet. No, I didn't know. Um, I'm happy. I gave all these out with the request that you bring them in. Um, there've been some, but they did such a nice job of cleaning up the room that they got rid of them. Uh, and I don't have, but I should. But in any case, 
In, in any case, I know, Rabbi Pinson, what are we going to do today? So the, uh, in any case, he's near the end. I, that, I have a feeling that wasn't your question. What are you trying to make? Oh, no, I just want to say this because I'm writing down. Oh, fantastic. That's yeah, the best. Yeah. That's the best. So if you picture this, we're really rounding out. You have a whole long list. The Northern Kingdom is gone. So we're, near, we're nearing the end. If you can picture, there's like a list of kings. He's really one of the last. Um, and really with Yoshiahu, his... Um, the, the last kings will be his three sons plus a grandson in the middle uh, is, kings for, is king for very, very, for three months, for a very brief period. And then that's it. And then there's Chorban Beis and Mikdash. So Yoshiah was big. And Yirmiyahu, I think that's who you're referring to, Jake. Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, um, he is not the last of the Nevim, not by a long shot. But he's considered, we'll talk about Yirmiyahu, he's deserving of his own focus. He is, he is considered... He's considered the last original Navi, so that all later Navua, all later prophecy is an extension of something already found in Yirmiyahu. And he's certainly ranked as one of the greatest all-time, not just Navim, but figures in all of history. That is prophets, right? He was certainly a tragic prophet. Um, I don't think sadness gets to it. I don't know where, I don't know where you get that terminology. Tragic certainly makes more sense. Sadness conveys a certain... Um, uh, general malaise with life, which I don't think would be right in this case. He was. He will get to him. We'll certainly we'll certainly see his plight. He had a, he had a difficult life. Um, Yoshiahu, because I'll say, was such a great king. Was so much not just promise. He really got uh, he got immense um, immense things pro uh, accomplished in his life. Among other things, as Chazal say, there was never a king uh, in history who sparked such a massive wave of tshuva. He inspired Jews in times that, if you remember, in recent times, it's gone back and forth. We've had righteous, we've had wicked kings who brought about idolatry, certifiable grade A idolatry, only to be eradicated by a righteous king in the likes of Yechizkiah Melch, who purged the country of idolatry, only to be reinstated by the next king, by Menashe, and then his son Ammon, and, and, um, and so the people are a mess. They're schizophrenic, mean, and spiritually, they're all over the place, and Yoshiahu heralds uh, a whole new beginning in very hopeful ways. Now, the, um, the base of Mikdash, mostly because of his grandfather Menashe, had already begun, it was the beginning of the end, it seemed to be doomed, um, and in the case of Yoshiao, he held the promise of saving it. It didn't quite work out in the end, but, but it could have and maybe should have uh, been different. Um, as the Pasuk says in Malachim explicitly, no king before returned to Hashem with all of his heart and soul, nor did any arise afterwards. That's uh, Yoshiao's unique niche. When he was 16 years old, eight years into his monarchy, when he was 16, the Pasuk says, a little bit enigmatically, it says he begins to inquire of Hashem, which I think we understand that's the first signs of genuine shuva, searching, questing, trying to straighten out his life. I think in the classic sense, I think we can say that. I, 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 always, I, I only hesitate to use the term because it really is a, a lofty term, Baal Shuva. It implies somebody's really 
accomplish something. Most people today who describe themselves as Balei Tshuva, what they really mean is they're newly from and Halavai, maybe one day they'll be at the level of a Baal Tshuva, of a genuine Baal Tshuva who's a pretty, pretty accomplished, high-level uh, spiritual individual. Um, Yoshiao probably can really take that term, literally. He really turned everything around. Um, at 20 already, he's so inspired and he's in power that he can do this, he starts making serious reforms throughout the country. Uh, he will... He'll be, since he's the first in a couple generations, since his great-grandfather, Hizkiyahu, um, he goes north and make ins makes inspections and wants to see what's going on. You remember, there's still some stragglers, some remnants of the northern tribes uh, struggling, but, but, but existing in the north. It's Yoshiahu who was predicted to go north and finally get rid of the last remnants of... Which, namely, the Avodazara of the... Psalim, the Psalim, the, uh, the Eglos in Dan and Beitel. Do you remember the scene, of, uh, we did this a couple weeks ago, with Yeravim ben Nevad himself offering in Beitel, and Ido Hanavi had stepped forward to rebuke him, and Ido said explicitly, this is one of those times when you can see pr prophecy in the Psukim, specifically, Ido, Ido comes and says, in 300 some odd years, a king by the name of Yoshiahu, I, I mentioned this, by the way, when we learned this, Yoshiahu will come and he will destroy this place. And indeed, Yoshiahu comes and he destroys, he obliterates, finally, the, there are remnants of the Egel down in Beitel and up and down, even after the, the uh, ten tribes are taken capti captive, and it's Yoshiahu who finally destroys them. Jake? What caused him to go against the document? Because there, there was a prophet on that, on the thing that they used to set that. When they built the, the eagle. Yes, when Yeravan ben Nevat built that eagle, yeah. The two of the prophet, which actually. That was Edo. Edo. So, what, what, what caused this king to go against the prophet of like Edo? Which well, king went against the prophet Edo? Yeravan or Yoshiao? Yoshiao was doing exactly as, he, as it was prophesied to do, prophecy to do. He wasn't going against, he was fulfilling the prophecy. No, he, he went against the, the first uh, prophet. The prophet who signed up and said, I'm putting my name. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Well, how did he have the license to go against Achia Shiloni? You remember very yeah. well. Because Achia seemed to endorse it. I don't know the answer. I haven't explored it. My, my understanding, though, is in this kind of an instance where clearly it was predicted by the genuine prophet. Remember, Achia was duped. The genuine prophet predicted this. It must be, we have to say something along these lines, that Yoshiao knew the real truth. He knew what Yehu himself didn't know. Remember, Yehu only went along with the egg. Remember when Yehu got rid of the house of the Baal? Yehu went, uh, went along with the Eglos because Achia had the signature on there. Yeah. That's what you're remembering. Yeah. Yehu was duped. Yoshiao was not. Yoshiao knew that if, if Achia, I mean, we'd have to say, and I imagine that some of Farshim addressed this question, we have to say that he knew better. He was able to, do, to, 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 to finally put an end to the Eglos up north. He gathers the remnant um, priests, the, the Komrim, to the, uh, to the Baal, and he slaughters them uh, to all the Bamos. Um, 200 years have passed since Yehoash, even though relatively recently we covered here, but we actually did 200 years in a pretty quick uh, time for us. Um, Yehoash had repaired the base of Mikdash in his good days. That was before he slaughtered. Uh, that was before he slaughtered uh, Zechariah ben Yehoyada and the, the, bub blood, the blood bubbling up on the Chatzer that wouldn't stop for 268 years. I'm reminding you. 
blank stairs, blank stairs from you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Is that when he killed the? He killed the Cohen. It was the seven sins of Esau Mikdash. Yom Kippur, that was Shabbos. All of that. That that same that same king earlier had done repairs in the base of Mikdash, and nobody had since until and in his 18th year as king Yoshiau, who's our subject today, Yoshiau himself collects funds and begins massive renovations in the base of Mikdash. So you can really see he's taking spiritual inventory. He's doing a collect, collective, massive cleanup of the of Klal Yisrael. And you can understand why Chazal understood that he was the great last hope of the Jews uh, to, to turn the situation of the Chorban around. As we were going down that, as if, if you want to take a metaphor, let's say we're going down that rill, that the, the, those, those tracks towards doom, he's about to reverse the momentum of doom and try to turn the train around. Um, he was on his way. He was way, so stay with me. Now, in the Yerushalmi, we find out that the king had never seen a Sefer Tyra for the first 18 years of his rule. And this is all a process, so he'd been king for a while now. And he appoints two, two great men to, uh, to start doing the renovations, the repairs in the Beis Mikdash. Their names are Chilkiyahu, who's the Kohen Gadol, and a figure by the name of Shafan HaSofer. Um, a scribe is called Sofer, do you know why? Why the term Sofer? He writes books, but what is a Sofer literally doing? He's described Sofer, he counts. Like Sfira Saomer, he counts things. They actually counted letters. They were so meticulous in their work, in their, in their art, and we're going to see this by um, classic Sofrim, uh, the Anshay Knesset Gedol, including Ezra HaSofer. That was very much their, their focus. Shafan HaSofer, if you've never heard of him, actually had a very famous grandson. Anybody know who Shafan's grandson was? Come, who comes later? Well, I'm not telling you. Uh, go look it up or, or, uh, or wait. Um, in the process... Not long. In the process of the... Re this week, Bez Hashem. In the process of the renovations, they happen upon a special find. They discover nothing less than... Moshe Rabbeinu's own Sefer Torah. Yeah, with, with Devarim, that's the key. Right, right. It's, it, was the, it was the Sefer that had been hidden since the time of Ahaz, since Yoshiao's great-great-grandfather Ahaz. Ahaz hid it away, and they discover it. Chilkiyahu, you remember the scene, Barak, very good, is shocked because when he opens it, it's turned directly to the passage of the Tochacha, of the rebuke in Parshas um, Kisavo. What's that? Yeah, very good. Of course, you did. You did Google it right now, didn't you? Okay. Uh, yeah, that's less impressive, I have to say. But you know, okay. Yes, Gedalia ben Achikam ben ben Shafan. The so he. Why do I do this? I mean, a I'm doing this to try to make this a little more engaging, so you don't have to put your, your forehead on the table in the middle of the table. No, no, don't far be it for me. The, um, <coughs> but honestly, I don't know, but I want you to get, I want you to absorb and internalize. I want you to feel like this is part of your bones, this history. And when you start making these connections, you get it more and you retain it more. Yeah, there's still one hint about, about him that, that nobody has picked up yet. About Shafan? No, no, about, about you remember? You, you dropped I, I dropped a hint. I, uh, oh, I did. There's yeah. one thing. That's right. Oh, very good. Yeah. I did plant one of these riddles in the ferment a long time ago. Oh, 
Right. Uh, and that's the point. That was the riddle. I, if I tell you that, you're giving the answer already. If I tell you the riddle, I can't, I can't repeat it. It's a tip. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's a terrible riddle. I have to say it's the pits. Okay. <clears throat> the, uh... Okay, moving on. Moving on. Hilkiah shocked, opens the Torah and finds where he opens the words that are unfolding in front of him are the following. It's a pasuk from, from Mishnah Torah, from Devarim. It says... Um, by the by, the curse, Yulich Hashem Oscha Hashem will lead you, and then dot 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 El Goy Asher Lo Yadata to a nation that you didn't know. In other words, predicting the do- the doom of the Jewish people, he takes it as a divine sign. In times, in times of Nisim Gluim, you realize the times in history are about to change forever. We're still at the, in the days where there are such things as open miracles, and this is considered an open miracle. That's when you have a sign, we don't have this in the, to the same level nowadays. That's a proper, proper Golagra. It's a proper. Golagra. You know, oh, Golagra, right. Golagra, which is sometimes questioned and not so clear that it's yeah. really the real thing. This is, this is you can take this literally when, it's, when, it's, when the Sefer Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu himself is found and to be open, Dafka there, and you're living in times of extraordinary tshuva where the king himself is leading the, the charge, uh, you can be certain that this, that this is um, meant to be taken seriously, and it's predicting the end, and immediately Hilkiah and Shaphan report to Yoshiah, the king, and they, they, and they tell him, and he hears this, he's so shaken, he tears Kriya, he tears his garment, he breaks into tears, and he says, he says that the people who are going to be punished are those who are not fulfilling the words of the Torah. His response, Aleinu lahakim. Well, then it's our obligation, we're going to have to fulfill the words of the living Torah. He immediately proclaims that the king can do, because he has the power to do, to do emergency measures. He proclaims hakel. Ordinarily, we have hakel, where the king reads from the Mishnah Torah, from the Sefer Dvarim, in, in, the, in the presence of all the people. It happens at the end of the Shemitah year, um, and, the, um, and, ha- and Yovel, uh, and he proclaims a hakel. The nation gathers, what's left of the nation of Yehud, of Judea, gathers, and he reads from the scroll. And all the nation there is shaken to the core. And they recognize the godless. And again, this is, you have to imagine, picture the scene. You're living in times of Nebuah, where the king himself is, is, is encouraging this wave of tshuva. The people are very, very uh, re- receptive. It's a wonderful time. I know, you're curious, huh? We stay tuned. Um, he then decides that he realizes there are still, um, there's still a Vodazara infesting the people still holdovers from the days of Menashe and from um, Ammon, his father, and he appoints ancients to go and, and scour the land. They're going to root out all of the Avodah as best they can. Now, most had made shuva, but you remember Menashe's legacy. He left what we call the Ame Haaretz, the people of the land, what are called sometimes the Leitzone Hador, the, uh, the Leitzonim, the clowns of the generation, they are stubborn and insistent. They're going to maintain it like a guy maintains his laptop, even if the yeshiva officially prohibits it. So, like they carefully hide the laptops. The late Sonny Hador come make space for, for. Thank you. They they maintain it. And what do they do? This is all, by the way. You can read about it in the eleventh kina that we read on the day of Tisha B'Av. Um, what they do is they hide it in their actual doors. 
And what do they do? The idol is only recognized as such when it's complete. So they take half the idol and they put it in one door, and they take the other half an idol and they put the other door. And what happens? The guards, you with me? The guards come through, they open the door to the house, they look in the house, they scour everything, they say, well, nothing here, and they close the doors as they leave, not having noticed that inserted in the actual door frames were the actual idols. And they report back to the king, mission accomplished, king, no more idolatry in this land. And they neglect to find all of the idolatry. And then it happens. You keep asking, what, what actually took place? What was his, his mistake? Um, <clears throat> that's coming. But before we talk about the end, which is the tragic end of this great king, this, this noble and well-intending uh, soul, um, before he ends, he does something of lasting significance. Um, especially, it's another theme in history that we're picking up that really connects a lot of the threads. He is in the Davidic line, absolutely. Yoshiel Melech, again, oh, you have it. No, no, you don't have it. I thought, okay. Oh, Aaron has it. Aaron, do you have your, um, your lineage, the, uh, the, the kings? And my request again in the future, I have more handouts. I'll have more handouts in the course of class. I don't think I got, you got any of them, did you? So send me an email to remind, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some more. Menasheblywise at gmail.com. Because um, these, these are useful things to have. So take a look here. Right? Look, look right here, and you can see he's direct Davidic line. Yoshiao all the way back to David Amelech. Yeah? Um, even if you want to see, if you want, you want to peek, so Aaron has it. Can I, can I kind of borrow it and send it in the back? Anybody wants to take a peek and then make sure you get it back to Aaron. Oh, wait, pass it back? <laughs> you have it, but take it and you can refresh yourself while you have it, then, then pass it back. So, the, the, one of the great things that Yoshiao does, he's concerned, he's anticipating that there's going to be a Horban. He doesn't know better. Again, he's trying to fix things, but meanwhile, remember, this, this Torah scroll was open on the, on, the, on the prediction of doom. So in anticipation, he takes the Aaron Kodesh itself, the holy ark that has inside of it what? The Luchos Abris, which ones? Both of them, the broken ones, the first ones that are broken, the second ones that are whole. Um, it, it, uh, included is the jar of man, Right, the manna, the flask of Shem and Mishcha, the anointing oils for kings and Kohen Gadol, um, the makel, the staff that, uh, that Moshe used and Aaron used, and the mate that the Mashiach is going to use that we've traced through history. Um, he takes the almond tree and its fruit, the, the, the gifts, you remember the, the, the golden, um, golden the golden mice and hemorrhoids? Oh, the cloak's not mentioned, but don't know, could be, not sure. Uh, it's not mentioned in the Gemara and Yuma. Um, other sources indicate that, um, that there were other elements that, that were included but not listed. Um, he took it and he buried it. Let me finish. Let me just complete the thought. He takes them, not wanting any of these holy objects to get into the hands of the, um, of the impure Babylonians. He takes all of the above and he, just, and he knows where, because of his ancestor Shlomo, when he built the temple, built those labyrinthine tunnels underneath Harabais itself. You remember those tunnels? And so he, he goes down, way, way down beneath the ground and buries everything there. He is allowed, he is, he is Mashiach Hashem. I mean, he's an anointed Hashem. He's not the final Mashiach, but as king, he is called Mashiach. 
and and he absolutely is entitled and authorized. He's doing it the same shemaim. He buries he buries everything deep beneath the ground, and arguably that's where they sit until today. Indiana Jones, eat your heart out. Uh, and meanwhile, they were digging. They were where, where did they go in that movie? You know, like all over the place. Nobody thought to the most logical address that they're, that they're that they're there underground together with in the same tunnels that you recall Shlomo had buried all the elements of the Mishka that he didn't need in the base of Mikdash, they're also down there, and we're not done. There are going to be a few more artifacts that go down there as Wait, well. Wait. One second, Daniel. How do we know what, um, what, uh, what the arms looks like? How do we know what? The? The Aaron Kodesh? We have, a, we have a Masoira. We have a Masoira. Remember, all the Masoira is still being transmitted by word of mouth. So even if we don't have the actual things, um, people are authorized and knowledgeable to, to be able to give that over. Word of mouth. Um, I, I have to say, what, now, where does he place them? The, the access to the tunnel is, this is all from the Gemara. If you're interested in this subject, look it up in the Gemara. In Yuma, Nun Dalad Aleph. All of which is under the Deer Lishka Saetzim in the Ezra's Noshim on the west of the temple. Um, there are different chambers where different parts of the Avoda are stored, including the wood chamber. And under there, underground, is the entrance to all of these tunnels that go way underground, and that's where they are buried. Now, to be fair, what I just said is actually the subject of a Machlokis Tanaim. Meaning, it's that's one dominant view. There is, however, another view that, that that's not the fate of the Aaron Kodesh and the others. The other position is that the Aaron Kodesh was in fact carried off to Babylon and taken there with many of these other elements, uh, stolen, in other words, by the Bavlim themselves. And there, arguably, they lie till today, together with the rest of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction if they're still there. In other words, somewhere underground, maybe in the palace in Baghdad, don't know, uh, is, it, it, it may, that's the other view, that there may be there. Um, I would say there's a lot to suggest. The first view is right, we simply don't know. When I say that they're there till today, you be the judge. I'm gonna share, you're gonna hold the question just for a couple more minutes and I'm gonna, then, then I'll open the floor. Once, the Gemara tells the story of a Kohen in the Second Temple period, he noticed that the stones on the ground in the area of the Lishkas Dir Ha'etzim, um, in that wood chamber, was different than the others. And he thought, because everybody knows these traditions, right? If you've never heard this before, that's because our generation just doesn't know much. But back in the day, all Jews knew everything. They lived and breathed their history. So, um, so he saw the stone was different. And he had, I guess if we, this is the cartoon version, uh, we would, he would have one of those light bulbs suddenly go off over his head. He'd go, ooh, ooh, look what I found. He turned to tell the others, and when he started describing it, he didn't finish speaking, and he died. What? Such secrets apparently were not meant to be revealed. Where the, where the location of these tunnels was meant to be a secret, if, they, if the generation was not worthy to retrieve all of these great treasures, so Hashem has no interest in retrieving them. Elsewhere, we find two Kohanim, who were both Balimum, they were, they were blemished, and their job in the base of Mikdash was to remove the rotten wood, and one of them was working, and his axe slipped into that place, and when he went to retrieve the axe, a fire suddenly shot out from that hole and consumed him. So, um, very briefly, 
very briefly, I asserted if that first shot is the real shot, either then the Aron Kodesh is deep beneath the, the base of Mikdash, alternately it is in the area somewhere in Bavel. Um, not, I mean, maybe it's in Bavel, maybe it's there. There's a, there's a view that's not legitimate that it's out near Har Nevo, out in today's Jordan, and people, archaeologists, have such a notion that it's out there, but it's not basically like Indiana Jones. It's from, yeah, no, that's from Vendel Jones. Not Indiana Jones, Vendel Jones, who claims that he was the inspiration for Indiana Jones, that's debatable. Um, in any case, he thought it was out there. No, no, it's, there's, a, there's a reference in the book of, of Maccabim, the Maccabees books, but those are not, those are not, uh, those are not part of the um, canon that we recognize as legitimate. So these are the two sources. Um, remember, I asserted, I asserted that they haven't, they, that it's there till today. The reason I believe, if this first shot is correct, that it's still there, is since this time in history, since Yoshiahu arguably placed all these things under temple, the Temple Mount, the area has not been touched, not by people, not by archaeologists who are, you know, not always people, uh, and not by, not by anybody else. In history, the way it would work, if you had the first temple period, destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, but then abandonment. They certainly didn't, didn't explore there. They left the Temple Mount area alone. When, the, when Kali Yisrael came back and rebuilt the second temple, then nobody touched the area underground, all the way till the Churban Ba'is Shani. The, temp, the second temple then is destroyed um, by the Romans, who then take control of Yerushalayim as a military outpost. Certainly nobody touched it then. The Romans could care less. They're pagan, and the Jews are not allowed in. The entire period under the Romans is one brief hope that the Jews can come back, but they didn't have, they weren't there long enough to really retrieve anything. And then again, Roman Byzantine period, hundreds of years, lasting until 638, the conquest of Yerushalayim by the Muslims who have a, 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 in their culture a historical incuriosity. They built their buildings up there after the conquest later that same century. They conquered Jerusalem in 638, and later that century, Abdul Malik will build the um, what we call the Dome of the Rock. It only is gold in, the, in, in, in recent years. It used to be a black dome. Um, but the Dome of the rock was, rock was completed in the year um, 692. But they left the whole thing intact. They weren't interested in digging underground. And Muslims never were interested in digging and exploring. It's just not part of their worldview. His son, Walid Ibn Abdul Malik, will be the one who built the Al-Aqsa Mosque, completing it in the year 705. Um, and then you have the Arab period. Again, the area of Temple Mount is mostly on top, they're functioning, but underground, nothing going on, um, and, and dormant. Dormant, the Crusaders converted into a church, but they don't do much in that area otherwise. Uh, and then again, it falls into Arab hands through the Mamluk and the Ottoman periods. Uh, in the modern times, in the beginning of the 20th century, the British write about, excuse me, Rav Tukhachinsky writes about a, a brief British um, excavation. Archaeologists, just in the birth of archaeology, around the early archaeological expeditions in Eretz Israel, had an interest in digging under there, but there's no indication that they found anything. And then, with modern politics and Jews and Arabs and Arabs and Jews, in the modern day, the area is among the most contested in the world. And if anything's been going down, down there, uh, you know, going on down there, we probably would have heard about it. There would have been an international conspiracy if Muslims had done it, the Jews would have screamed. If Jews would have done it, the Muslims would have screamed. And so that's why it seems to me reasonable that if it's down there, it's still down there, and it'll come back when the Kaddish Baruch who is good and ready. Yeah. When, it, when Bar oh no, Jake was first. If you said the second temple period. That about the person who found it, like, still different. Did they have this part of Nak during that period? In the second temple period, 
Did they have? Why wouldn't they? Of course, they had this. Of course, uh, they knew all their history. As I said, they were they, walking historians. If they had this part of that, why did they go look for it? What were they looking for? What was the purpose? What function would it serve? They knew in Bayesheni that it was like a temporary makeshift kind of a thing. They were looking to uh, create the uh, Mashiach and bring about the time of the Messianic era. That's when these things would come back and be reused appropriately. Until then, what would be the function? Yoshia, yeah, go ahead, Barak. Uh, I, I met some guy who was uh, was actually one of the people who went to Saddam Hussein's palace. Okay. He conquered the palace. And did he find the Aaron Kodesh? No, no, he actually found a Tanjadeg, uh, uh oh. huge thing. Today. Oh, I'm not surprised. And uh, there must be such treasures out in Baghdad. And, and they're actually uh, back in America right now. Oh wow. Iraq is very upset. They are suing. Oh, they managed to get away with them. You said. Yeah, they, they, Good they for them. They're upset that the Jews took back what right. the what the Muslims had stolen from us. Chutzpah. Right. Chutzpah. But the Iraqis. Okay. So they're probably going to save America. That's what they said. Yoshiao brings all of the Jews, even from the north. Um, to Yerushalayim for a special Korban Pesach celebration, just like his great-grandfather Chizkiyahu had done. Um, Jews are temporarily reunited. Um, most of the idolatry had been purged. There's a great celebration that ensues. And then the, 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 the question that you've been, you've been kind of, we've been skirting around, this is what happens, Jake. It's told, if you want to look it up, it's the Gemara in Tiny Schaf Beis, Samud Aleph and Beis. Paro Necho, is the latest Egyptian king. They're all called Paro, Necho. Uh, he must have been crippled on some level. He was short. Um, we find a disproportionate number of enemies of Klal Yisrael tended to come in short sizes. Um, Paro himself, the original Paro, was short, as we'll find Nebuchadnezzar around the corner was, was, was notably short. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, Hitler, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and many others, if you want to go into some interesting psychobabble, you could do a whole analysis of sometimes people have to compensate if they have a perceived uh, deficiency, so they need to compensate with cruelty sometimes. Maybe they're onto something, don't know. Um, in any case, go ahead. Oh, was this, could this be a tut? There are all kinds of thing, things. I don't think we have any way of proving that. There's a lot of more mystery around King Tut than not. So, maybe for all plausible theories, David. One of the things I my interest in learning history as best I can is to try to be as emistic as possible. So where I read often historians because they're also entertainers want to be able to tie up things and, and give the wow surprise factors. And I'm asserting to you today that Paronecho was officially King Tut, because they've been able to say that. You, you can like publish a doctoral dissertation if you want to prove make such an argument, except that it's not really intellectually honest. We don't know a lot. And I like to include that. It means that my version of history has lots of loose ends and is messier and doesn't have, doesn't it doesn't end as with pretty finishes and, and and so on. But I also think it's more it's more accurate and more honest if we if we try to include all of this this picture. What we do know is Paronecho decided to go to war with the new power. They're still in power, not the new power anymore. The old power of Ashur. Bavel hasn't yet risen, and Egypt has decided to go to war with Ashur. Now, in order for, picture this on the map, you got this? In order for Egypt to go to war with Ashur, you got a problem, you got to cross through Eretz Judea, Eretz Yehuda. And that's exactly what he hopes to do. 
and he sends word ahead, and he says to Yoshiao, we have no conflict. All I want to do is take my soldiers, pass through the land, and go up and, and fight that battle. I don't mean to pick a battle with you. And Yoshiao heard, heard the request and decided to refuse. See, it says in that same section of the Torah that when they found the Torah, it was open to the section of the Klala. But it says a little bit earlier than that by the Bracha that when you behave yourselves and when everything is going well and you have no idolatry in the land, one of the many promises that HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes to us is Cherev Losavor Ba'artzachem. A sword will not cross through your land. The way that Pasuk is understood is not a sword of battle, because that's another promise that Hashem makes, that you will have peace with your enemies. But not only will there be such a beautiful, there will be such bounty and such bracha in the land, not only will you not have to go to war with your enemies, but even when your enemies, are, or when other people are fighting other people, they will not come into your land, your land. You will have nothing to do with any conflict, any battle at all. No sword at all will pass through your land. And so Yoshiao, convinced that he successfully purged the land of any idolatry, feels Klal Yisrael now is holding on this very exalted level and says, no, I'm not going to let you pass through the land because the promise is I don't need to. What do we need this? We don't even want to get come in contact with conflict. Being uh, Yerei Shemaim, he approaches, he approaches a gadol uh, with a shaila, and this was his mistake. He decides to ask the shaila, he could have asked the shaila to the gadol hador, the gadol hador being, of course, I mentioned his name a few minutes ago, the gadol hador these days, Yirmiyahu Hanavi, and he could have and should have asked Yirmiyahu, um, Yirmiyahu's opinion explicitly, and he says this, was let Paro Necho pass. He says, you don't know, king, but the generation is not quite as good as you think it is. But the king approaches a different prophet, in this case, the last of the seven prophetesses. Do you remember her name? We've met that we, we, we said many years ago, it was many years ago that we met, we met the last significant female prophet. Devorah we've already met. Devorah we met. Actually, she's not the last. There's another one that's going to come later, of course. What's that? Hannah we've met, and she was long ago. Miriam and Avigail, right? All, we've all, we've met them all. It's not Esther yet. It's Hulda. Hulda at the end of, and she's a great woman, but here she makes a mistake. Um, he approaches her, the Gemara Megillah tells us, because Nashim Rahmanio said, women have greater compassion. And she says, you're right, you do not have to let Paronecho pass. Um, his mistake was he should have asked the Gadol Hador. Sometimes when you're in a position of authority, you have to ask the right person, the right Shaila. Um, ben, the, the, one of the commentaries, the Ben Yoyada, the Ben Ishchai, tells us that, um, he has to explain this, because what does that mean? She gave him one answer, and Yirmiyahu gave him another answer, but isn't all prophecy Hashem's word? How does Hashem give one prophecy to one prophet and another to the other? So he says, um, Cholda should have consulted the more seasoned and senior Yirmiyahu. She crossed wires. She didn't get it quite accurate, um, which could happen, and Yirmiyahu was the last word in the subject. And so, Yoshiao resists, Paronecho threatens. He says, I didn't have to go to war with you, but if you insist, if you refuse to allow me to come, then I will go to war with you. 
And indeed, they have a massive confrontation that takes place in the Megiddo area, the area around Megiddo, in which there is a, a devastating attack on the side on the part of the Christians. The uh, king is in the battle, and the king ultimately not only loses, but the description of the Gemara is horrific. The king himself is shot. His, he has, the Gemara describes, um, holes in his body like a sieve, like, a, like something he used to sift flour with. His body is perforated with holes with arrows. And the king lays dying, and Yirmiyahu runs to him dramatically to hear him, to comfort him. And with his last breath, he opens his mouth and starts speaking. And Yirmiyahu is aghast because he can't make out the words, but he thinks, uh-oh. Maybe the king, in his dying breath, he's such a righteous man, but maybe now he's upset and he's saying something blasphemous. But he notices, he sees the king's lips moving, and he makes out the words. The words are, Tzadiku Hashem kipihu marisi. Hashem is righteous and correct. It's his word that I've rebelled against. I should have listened to Yirmiyahu. He's saying in his dying breath, recognizing his sin. And Yirmiyahu responds, these are all psukim and echa, he responds, Ruach Apenu Mashiach Hashem, literally the breath of our of our of our, um, our, our our living breath is the anointed one of Hashem. We should listen to our kings and their righteousness. Yoshiao has expressed the quality that we've always prized in Yehuda and David and the Davidic line of people who are great individuals who make mistakes. And what's the one quality that we find in from David down to Yehuda, all the way down to Yoshiao? Great people who make mistakes, and then and then admit to them, and own up to them, and have no problem in, in, uh, taking responsibility. As in his dying breath, that's what we find Yoshiao doing exactly, exactly that. Tzadik Hashem kipiu marisi ruach apenu Mashiach Hashem Jake. The foundation of the like all things bad seem to be like come from Egypt. Oh yeah, good observation. Egypt, and we're going to see Egypt. Like no question. Hadra, no Hadra, question. Hadra was, was, uh, was, the was the mother. Was the prince Egyptian princess who, who sired uh, Yoshia, yeah. no, uh, uh, Yishmael. Yeah, no. Egypt has not 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 been so kind to us over the years. The destruction of the base of Egypt. Yes. Came from Egypt. Great observation. So Yoshiyahu perishes, uh, we, somebody who was our last, arguably our last hope. Um, his work, however, was not in vain. He did get rid of most of the major of Odazara from the nation. And even though small remnants remain, um, these were secret, infrequent, and overwhelmingly the fringe. And I can effectively tell you now, in the waning days of Avodah don't get me wrong, the Jewish people have other problems, but specifically, a major confrontation with Avodah we've now seen, in any major way, the end of it. From this point on to the modern day, there isn't wholesale worship of Avodah as we find back in these days, and to that, um, Yoshiao's le legacy is quite significant. Um, when he dies, I should do this on the board. Yoshi, oh, but you have it in, let me, can I take out the king's list again? Yoshiao has three sons. They are, in order of age, 
sorry. You've got, again, you have Yoshiahu, right? And then he has three sons. He has Yeho, excuse me, I'm not spelling it right, Yeho Yochim. Then he has Yeho Ahaz. And then he has Tzidkiyahu, who's going to be the last king. Yeho Yochim has a son who's called Yeho Yochim. Okay, those are those are the these are the last five kings. Can you just pay attention for a second because everybody always gets confused with this? It goes like this. Yoshiahu dies, and he, for all kinds of interesting reasons, is replaced by his second son, Yehoahaz, who's replaced by the older brother Yehoyakim, who's then replaced by Yehoyakim, and finally Tzikiyahu. So it's not it's not a logical order. But these are the, this is the order of the last uh, this is the order of the last five kings of Klal Yisrael. Got it? What was the second son? So the second son was seen to be more emeritus than the, than the oldest son. So Yehoahaz rules for three months. Um, he's described as lacking his father's virtues, but he also doesn't do much harm. So his father's dead. Yehoahaz is the is the new ruler. Very briefly. He does little harm. Should also comment about these names, Yoshiao, Yo, uh, these four names, Yehoyakim, Yehoyachas, Tzikiyahu, Yehoyachim. None of them were their original names. Hold the thought for a second, Barak. Let me get this idea out. None of these um, received their names. None of them. None of these were their original names. Um, originally, you don't have to know this, but originally, uh, Yehoyachas was called Shalom. Yehoyakim uh, was El Yakim. Yehoyachim was Yehonia as he's called in the Megillus Esther, Tzikiyahu was called Messania. And what happened is, is all of these kings, even though they're sovereign in, in Judea, will ultimately become subjugated to greater powers, and the greater powers change their names as a way of maintaining control. It's like the... Anybody ever, anybody ever here suffer through junior high school? It's the bully, bully on the block who says, I know your name is Barak, but I'm going to call you Meathead. Right, kind of a thing. You know, as a way of saying, you know, we know who's really boss. So that's, interestingly though, they chose names with, with some nice, I mean, Hashem is a, included in all the names, and Zikiyahu is a righteous person. They were good names, but it was a way of subje uh, subjugating Klal Yisrael. Barak, what were you going to say? Oh, so, so about the Paro. The yeah, one Paro Necho, I'm not done with him yet. Oh, well, he, he was an actual pharaoh. Uh, he was an actual pharaoh. I mean, like, Correct, he's yeah, one no, of the kings of this, Egypt. Like, yeah, the Yeah, Necho, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, like, yes, I didn't know, I mean, there's like a whole thing on him. Like, the Egyptians loved him. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure, right. And we, we have less favorable things to say about the man. I mean, um, now, remember he was fighting you know, Yoshiahu on the way up to fight a bigger battle? So he fights Ashur, and then Paronecho gets a little bit of big, big for himself, and he decides to take on Bavel, the new power, and he loses. And he loses, and you know anything about military conquest? I mean, this, even if you don't know anything about it, but you can figure it out, you want to win. And if you lose, and you go home, it's pretty embarrassing. In fact, the local people might not be so patient with you if you come back a loser. So you need to save face, and that's what Paronecho decides to do. On his way back to Egypt, he passes again through Judea, and he says, I think I'm going to pick up a party favor on the way. I know. I'll take Yehoahaz on the way. 
just as a way of showing them that you know I'm stronger and at least I won a couple battles. And so he just simply plucks the new king three months into his monarchy off of his crown and takes him down to Egypt. Just get absolute. Well, that's one that's one way of saying it. Yeah. And now Yoachas is gone. And um, the next brother, Yoachim, becomes the becomes the next king. But something significant has happened. Ooh, changing of the guard. Okay, something significant has happened. Um, let's take a moment to consider the, the implications. Yoachas goes down to Egypt, and he finds actually he's not the only Jew down there. There are other Jews um, all the way down that existed since the days of Chizkiyahu. Jews had started gravitating down to Mitzrayim. But with the arrival of Yoachas, he didn't come alone. Other Jews will also descend to, to Egypt. There now begins an official diaspora, uh, a, a gullus in Egypt that's going to grow from this point on. It's going to grow especially uh, with the days of Gedalia. And it's going, to, it's going to turn into a prominent center for Klal Yisrael for about a thousand years, a little bit more than a thousand years. And um, history is now taking an interesting turn. Up until now, we've had more of a simple history focused in Eretz Yisrael, because that's been our purview. That's really been the focus. Okay, it's true, we've had two kingdoms, we've bounced back and forth to the kingdoms, but there hasn't been much of a diaspora to speak of. From this point until the modern world, we're gonna have to, we have a lot of loose ends to try, to try to keep tabs on. We gotta start keeping track of where Kuala Yisrael is in the various diasporas. It's true, what goes on in Eretz Yisrael for much of history is central, and so we're gonna, it's gonna take up a disproportionate amount of our uh, discussion here. But not only, uh, there could be other things that are going on now, starting in Chutzlaret. What do we know about Egypt? For about a thousand years, uh, it's a significant diaspora. And very simply, that's a kasha. There's a kasha there that you should all be asking. You're not allowed to live in Egypt. I'm not, you're not, none of us are. There actually are three Torah prohibitions telling us that a Jew is not allowed. Hashem, after all, I don't know if you know this, you realize that Hashem took us out of Egypt? Well, he did, see? Uh, and he took us out, Aww. and a Jew going back, and a Jew going back to live in Egypt, it's an ingrate. How dare you? You can't do that. You know, stay out of there. That was Hashem's chesed. It's, 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 it's as it were, kicking out Hashem's chesed. But they did. Um, one great Jew who actually let out the end of his life in Egypt by the name of Rav Moshe Ben Maimon, otherwise known to us as the Rambam, famously began letters during this period of his life while he was living in Egypt. Hareni Moshe ben Maimon, ha'over b'shalosh lavim b'chol yom vayom. Here I am, Moshe ben Maimon, who transgresses three precepts in the Torah every single day. Among them, losifu lerosam od adolam. You shall not, you shall not continue to see them ever again. The pasuk tells us, and there are other pesukim in, in Parshas. Uh, par what's that? The Egyptians. The Egyptians. Don't see the Egyptians. When we get to the Rambam, keep this in mind, um, we have to understand the big cash that's asked about the Rambam. How can the Rambam, the Holy Rambam, write about himself openly and publicly that he was a transgressor of the Torah? He can't do that. He can't say it about himself, and he wasn't. And in fact, when the Rambam was there, he's a halachic, halachic giant, um, he had a reason to be there. And we'll have to explain that and talk about how that works and how until today, although interestingly, really today, 
I know a couple months ago, um, the leader of the official leader of the Egyptian Jewish community, which is tiny Pittsburgh, was a woman, passed away, and there's what's that? A woman. A woman was in charge in this case. It's mostly an assimilated Jewish community, and it's 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 uh, almost negligible. It's so small nowadays. Uh, but we'll see at different points in history, Egypt will be quite prominent and play a central role in the events. Um, Egypt's not the only diaspora. As, as we're speaking about this in the late First Temple period, we know that there were Jews living in the areas of Ammon, of Moab, um, possibly Yemen, and Spain. Um, Spain, if Spain is in fact Tarshish, as is described, some people say the Pshat of Tarshish is Spain. Um, maybe there's, there's, some, there's some straggling Jews around that area. Um, some say there might have been Jews as far back as Shlomo, Shlomo Homelech's reign. Some say in Yemen, they, go back, they date back to Shlomo's reign. There's no way of verifying any of these. These are simply traditions. If you ask Yemenite Jews, they say, yeah, we have a tradition. You know, that maybe we, we, you know, there have been Jews in Yemen um, all the way back, but there's no way of really knowing. Um, there may have been in, in the area of France as well. Rashi seems to indicate that, as does the Abarbanel. Uh, we don't know. Uh, since we're talking about different diasporas, I'm going to relate to something that Ilan asked last week that I looked into a bit. Um, and elsewhere tells us that Sanchei mixed up all the nations. And then, you remember this? Yeah. And then Ilan asked, but hey, we call Yishmael Yishmael today and Esav Esav. How does that work? So I refer you to, among other sources, I looked into a Tosvos, the longish Tosvos. Do you want to get this, Ilan? A longish Tosvos in Sota Daftes Amud Aleph 9a, um, where Tosvos there has a longer discussion, also indicating that it's not a literal statement. That, for example, there seem to be indications that there are remnants of the original Moab and Ammon themselves that come even after Sancheiruv uh, and others. Um, and so, and presumably Ishmael and Esav are in that list, so apparently it's not a hermetic statement, it's not a, an absolute kind of a statement. Um, certain nations clearly are gone. We will never again hear about the Plishtim, um, even though the Palestinians' name comes from them, but that's, got, that's another story that we'll have to explain uh, in, a, in, a few, in a few centuries from now. Um, uh, certain, certain nations have been, have been confused permanently, um, but there's clearly some ambiguity, ambiguity around this. Yes. Oh, it seems Egypt also seems to be the same Egypt. That, it's Mashmah from that Tosos, the line specifically about Egypt being oh. not having been confused and scrambled in the days of Sancheirut. Oh, right. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's uh, again, there's, uh, there's, there's some ambiguity and discussion around that. It's not so straightforward. Egypt no, but that's, uh, but that's that may, whereas I said last week that we call it Egypt because it's the same geographical region, but the people are not the Egyptians oh, from the not. days of old. No, and yet now I'm contradicting that. I'm saying Tosos indicates that they may be. No, it may no, actually be the no, original. They're all Arabs, though, because eventually the Muslims conquered. Um, eventually. You remember this say, morning I made the comment that not all Arabs are Muslim and not all Muslims are no, Arabs. I mean, In fact, a good number are not. And Egyptians are. specifically. Specifically, do you know that until the Muslim Revolution in the seventh century, most of Egypt was? I mean, know this. Egyptian Christian Copts. The Egyptian Copts were were the uh, were the dominant, and most of them convert not Arab by um, ethnicity. So we don't. So it's a mistake to think. Even though we have a tendency to lump Middle Easterners together, they're not. They're not. It's different. Different ethnicities. Different nationalities. <coughs> So, briefly to begin, we'll have to continue his, his flight. We have only a few minutes left. The next king, after Yoachas, is schlepped down to Egypt. 
the next king, the third to last king, is Yehoiakim. Yehoiakim, son of Yoshiao as well, the oldest of the brothers, he rules for 11 years. Uh, he's 25 when he takes the throne. He is described as cruel, evil. In fact, the Pasuk tells us, clean blood filled the streets of Yerushalayim. He was merciless, especially in his pursuit of prophets. He didn't like hearing Hashem's word spoken. Meaning innocent blood. That's that's the mashmas. That's 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 what it means. Innocent blood filled Yerushalayim. He went after Neviah Hashem, which we know is a special avera. Killing a navi on a certain level is like killing, trying to get at a kaddish baruch himself. Because a navi, after all, is just Hashem's mouthpiece. You kill. You don't like the message. You, you kill the messenger, but you're killing the messenger of Hashem. Uh, he prosecuted and almost almost personally murdered Yirmiyahu himself before having Yirmiyahu thrown into prison. He went over to Yirmiyahu and pulled out his beard. I don't know if you know that. That hurts. Okay, he pulled out Yirmiyahu's beard. Um, Baruch Beneria, Yirmiyahu's uh, protege, his, his disciple, read publicly Echa as a warning to the evil king. And um, and Yoyakim's response was to take Eicha and burn it. Wait, don't we read Eicha on this one? Yeah, we did. We did. So he took it and he burned it. Uh, he did that on the 28th of the month of Kislev, which became a fast day for many generations. Um, it's okay. Stuff written in prophecy can be rewritten. Not a problem. So they can burn it all they want. We'll restore it. Um, in response to this, Hashem promises that Yehoyakim will never receive proper kvura, proper burial, which is a terrible fate. And make a note of this because I got a great story to tell you next uh, tomorrow about what happens to Yehoyakim. Um, and so Yehoyakim's response when all this is happening and he's getting direct nevuah, prophets are telling him what's going to be. His response was, you know what? And I warned you about him. I warned you about bad people coming around the corner. Akiva, you were excited to hear about Yoyoki. He said, you know, I know that Menashe was not necessarily held in the highest regard by uh, and maybe Ahaz and Amon. I know my predecessors uh, went, cro went against Hashem. They crossed Hashem. Um, but you know, they didn't really know how to do it right. I know how to truly aggravate Hashem. And I'm going to do it. Martin Sennett says he was so evil... Uh, he did everything. He restored all the all the wicked ways, all of the greatness that his father, all the great uh, purges of Avodah He tried to restore. It wasn't quite. He, he wasn't successful in doing it, but he tried. His intentions were evil. Hakadosh Baruch Hu saw his evil, and the Gemara says was prepared to reverse the world. Tohu vavohu was going to take it back to utter chaos as it pre-existed. You remember the 974 generations that preceded Adam Rishon. Yoyakim got to that level. Except Baruch Hashem, there were certain Siddiquim still alive who preserved the world uh, as, as they have that they have the ability to do that. Um, now, what do we say about him? Who's worse? He or Menashe, his ancestor? So he may have been the epitome of evil, but it was Menashe who really had the ultimate influence and his legacy was the more poisonous. Interesting. We're going to have to see what, what, what is his fate. Um, let me just end. He was so aggressive. He went after the Navim and one Navi who's, I have to say really, I have a reason why he's one of my favorites. His name is Uriah ben Shmaya, Shmayahu. Um, he was a Kohen and he lived in a certain place that's known as Kiryat Yarim. Today it's identified in, this, in, in a place called 
Tell Stone. Indeed. Uh, so from my own hometown, Uriah ben Shemaiah um, was, as with the other prophets, telling the king like it was, you are evil, you will not continue. Um, it's Uriah whose prophecy is cited in a Gemara that you might be familiar with called Makos, in, the, in one of the most famous Agaratas in all of Shas at the very end of our Masechta. Pay attention when we get there this year. Uh, it's Uriah himself from Telstone who, uh, who, who um, Rabbi Kiva quotes. Now, when he starts criticizing the king and the evil of the time, they turn on him and start mocking him. Uh, he apparently had a questionable lineage, so they start making fun of his lineage. He runs away from them. They start, they start really uh, giving him a hard time. He escapes to Egypt. Yehoyakim HaMelech has him brought back from Egypt and personally smites the Navi with his sword. That's the, that's the nature of this evil king. And tomorrow we'll see what happens to him.